Thank you, Booney. And uh, Adam and Catherine and Alina for uh, your faithfulness to lead us uh, each week. If you have your Bibles, if you will, turn uh, together to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We're 31 weeks today uh, into our time in Matthew's Gospel. Um, and we have and are in this text arriving uh, at the conclusion of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Um, it's the end of that, th that fifth section of teaching that we talked about uh, in the way that Matthew put the Gospel together in uh, taking those blocks of Jesus' teaching and interspersing them throughout his gospel uh, as he argues uh, for Jesus being the, the Messiah King. Um, it's not to say that all of the teaching is done. Uh, we will push pause, as Adam reminded us, for the next three Sundays and give attention to uh, direction and focus as it pertains to us as a church and why we've been called out and what we are to be and what we're to do. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about it. It's not that the teaching ends today, uh, but that we will come back and look at the centerpiece of everything that Matthew has been pointing to, the centerpiece of the work of Christ uh, as we walk through the accounts of His uh, arrest uh, his the trials and everything that goes on, uh, his suffering uh, and his resurrection, and then in the end, what he has to say to his disciples and, and thus to us uh, as a church. What I want us to do, though, as we begin today is to remember the words that the angel spoke as he spoke with Joseph not long after Joseph discovered uh, that uh, Mary, the woman he was betrothed to, was pregnant with a child that wasn't his. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Don't lose that grounding. It's at the very... It's at the very heart of everything that Matthew is trying to point us to and to help us to see. And the very thing the Holy Spirit wants us to see. And the prophet Isaiah spoke of this Messiah King in this way. That he would carry the weight of the government upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and of peace there will be no end and on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. And it's these two realities that have been and are at the heart of Matthew's argument. And it is captured in Jesus' teaching when he says this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're not going to stray from that even today. So as we arrive in chapter 25, we were reminded that Jesus is in Jerusalem 
I was thinking about it this week. Jesus is in Jerusalem visiting his city, Zion City, for the very last time in, in, his, in, his, in the flesh. He'll come back in judgment in 70 A.D. He's going to return again, which was what he's pointing to even now. But he is there in his city for the final time before the crowds gather and shout and root for him to be executed. He's told his disciples several times what to expect. He is as much as told the religious leaders uh, that they're going to do this to him because that's who they are. That's what they're about. He told them that as he spoke to them with the parable of the vineyard owner who sent his own son to the tenants to receive payment. And what did they do? They killed the son. They killed the son. And it's at the conclusion of that that we hear that the Pharisees perceived that he was talking about them. We saw last week that following the very intense session in the temple where Jesus called out the religious leaders and openly and publicly exposed the sin of their hearts, and His disciples in leaving the temple remarked of the glory of the temple upon which Jesus without hesitation said, Truly, I say to you, there will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. And they were taken back by the response. So much so that they didn't have anything to say. They didn't know what to say. How are you going to address that? It was only later in the day that they came to him and asked him, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' answer to these questions. Last week we heard Jesus tell them three important things. If you weren't here, you may want to jot these three things down. He said, expect a delay in my return. My return will not go unnoticed. My return marks the time of judgment. That's what he said. And he told them that they needed to be watchful, to be ready, and to be faithful. And this morning, we'll see that he has more to say to them about these things, more to say to us about these things. Looking back over some stuff this week, you may find it interesting to know that the Bible has more to say about the second coming of Jesus than it does his first advent. In fact, the ratio is 8 to 1. There's 1,845 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. 17 of the Old Testament books have something to say about the return of Christ and the judgment that is associated with the coming of the Messiah. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament uh, point to and speak specifically about the second coming of Christ. It's been said, and I haven't counted it, but I read this, uh, that one in every 30 verses in the New Testament teaches about the end time and the coming of the Messiah. And I wonder why so many references to this single event. That's the question. We often talk about the coming of Christ. We'll head into as we move forward through our identity series. And then we have just a few weeks to finish up Matthew. And then we'll be at Advent. And we're looking ahead already now to Christmas to celebrate the coming of Christ. 
we give so much attention to that and so little attention even to giving consideration to the second coming. It may be that the Scriptures continue to tell us over and over again that because it is the final event in human history. The consummate event in the eternal plan of God for this creation, this earth, this world, these heavens, this life. The event where all accounts are settled. The event which marks off all that is evil and vile and wicked and against God and places all of those under eternal lock and key in the prison of hell to justly suffer torment forever and ever. The event where all of the redeemed are gathered and healed and made whole and renewed and restored and will forever enjoy the presence of the Lord God. Certainly it has to be something with that kind of grandeur for the Scriptures to just continue to talk about the second coming. So let's look at our text. It's divided into three sections. All three communicating Jesus' final comments about His return. There are two parables, and then Jesus gives clear insight into the final judgment. Before we read the text, I want to make a couple of points, and you'll understand why as we move along. It is it's disturbing. This text is a disturbing text. First, it's written for professing believers. I want you to gather that and, and hear that. If you're here and you haven't professed Christ, I'd encourage you to listen. It has implications for you. But the text was specifically targeting those who profess Christ. It's also disturbing because it shouts of discrimination. And... We're a people who generally do not abide in discrimination. What do I mean? Well, we see throughout all the parts when we look at it that it's going to exclude people. And we don't like exclusion. We live in an age where every kid gets a trophy. Everyone's a hero. We don't like the thought of someone being left out. So what do we do? We try to include everyone. And it's disturbing because it speaks of final judgment in which no one is overlooked and the reality of an eternal hell and an eternal punishment is held up before us. It's brought up. And we live in a world today that tells us that all you have to do to get to heaven is die because everyone who dies goes to heaven. But when we come to this text, we hear and see clearly that that is not true. It wasn't God's intent. It's not a part of His plan. It is not the way things really work. So let's look at the text. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 13. Reminded, we're still talking about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is still answering the disciples' questions. What is the end going to look like? When will it come? Tell us about these things. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps 
and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go gather, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The wise and watchful. The parable begins in the setting of a wedding. So this story that Jesus tells doesn't get lost on us. But let's consider the culture a little bit and let's take a look at what that wedding was like. One, it was one of the most celebrated events in all of the community. We should be reminded that John's account of the wedding at Cana. Remember, it was so well attended and went on for such a long time that the host ran out of wine and Jesus was called on by his mother uh, to take care of the problem. The point is, weddings were a huge event. The process began with the arrangement between the two families, followed by uh, the the betrothal period, which could last for months to even sometimes years. Why? Well, the purpose was was to give the groom time to get ready to get married, to get a job, to get established in business, to be able to support his family, to provide a home, to get ready for all of those things that come along when, when we get married. We don't do that so much. We just go get married and then try to figure it out after that. But that was not the way of the culture. Here were things to get prepared for. Financially take care of his bride. And then in the end to prepare for the feast. Announcements would go out in advance letting the community know the date of the feast and the celebration. Meaning it was getting close. Jesus has been pointing as he has been talking about the things that we could know that he was getting close. And the bride would be prepared along with her bridesmaids and They would gather at the bride's home and they would wait for the groom to come and get his bride and escort her to the great celebration. That's the picture. And Jesus used this wedding celebration as a picture for his disciples because he knew that in their culture they would know what he was speaking about. And here's the point that Jesus is making. Everyone knew that the groom was going to come. I was reminded whenever I was studying this text back in John chapter 14 when Jesus points to the fact that He is going to go and prepare a place. What was He doing? He's preparing houses, preparing mansions, and He will return again and will receive who? Will receive His bride into Himself because everything will be made right. The preparations will be made. That's what He was pointing to here. Everyone knew that the groom was coming, 
but no one knew when. They're sitting at the bride's house, these ten virgins. They all have a role to play in the course of this wedding. We'll see that in just a moment. They had a job to do. They were to light the way for the groom and his bride as they traveled to the wedding feast. That's the reason that they had the lamps and the torches and should have had the oil to keep them lit. And the story tells us there were five of the bridesmaids who were not prepared. They were the, they were the foolish ones. They were the ones that were not wise. Uh, there's really a better translation for that word. It was stupid. That's the, that's the actual translation. They were stupid. We just rounded it off and tried to be real sensitive with it in our language and call them foolish. They were stupid. They gave no real consideration to the groom's coming or to their overall responsibility to the bride. They were not watchful and they were not wise. And then notice what happened. The announcement comes and the groom is arriving. And then they immediately recognize we don't have the oil to do what we need to do, what we were called to do. That is to light the way, to celebrate, to follow along in procession here, to acknowledge the groom and acknowledge the bride and support them and do for them. And what do they do? They ask those who are wise and who are prepared, give us some of yours. And there was wisdom shown here in two ways by those who were wise. The wise had already made the preparation and the wise knew that they could not give away what they had because if they did, then everything would be lost. They were wise at two points. They say, go purchase your own. Um, we probably don't like that much because we would expect if you had to do what? To give and to share. That wasn't the point. They couldn't share and get to where they needed to go. They couldn't share and be ready for the groom. So the foolish ones set out to purchase more oil. They miss the coming of the groom, the text tells us. And they arrive at the feast late. And I can hear them. Lord, Lord, we're here now. Let us in. And what does he say? Look at those closing words. Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Reminded that earlier in Matthew's Gospel, we heard the same thing. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the point? Well, Jesus is making the point, and He sums it up there in verse 13. He says exactly what He meant here, and He's telling this to His disciples. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. He's saying the groom is coming, I'm coming. He's echoing again, there's going to be a delay, but he's telling them to be watchful and to be ready. I wonder today if we are living with a sense of watchfulness. Prepared for the return of the Lord. Or are we living and engaging life day to day without any consideration of His return? 
Are our lives so consumed with school and work and career and personal pursuits to the point of distracting us from giving consideration, being watchful, looking ahead, being ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus' point is be watchful and be ready. And you may be asking, what does it mean to be ready? Well, he's getting ready to tell us. So let's look at what he says next. I've entitled this, The Working and Faithful, beginning in verse 14. For it, what? The kingdom of heaven, okay? We're still talking about the kingdom of heaven. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went out at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them and he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more saying master you delivered to me five talents here I have made five talents more and his master said to him well done good and faithful servant you've been faithful over a little I'll set you over much enter into the joy of your master And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. In other words, you wicked and lazy man. You knew that I reaped where I had not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he'll have an abundance but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Already we see, we have those ten virgins, ten bridesmaids. The only thing that separated them was at the end of the day the 
genuine part of their profession. They all were there. They were all professing to be friends of the bride. They all were professing to do what they had been called to do. But at the end of the day, only five did what they were supposed to do. And now we come around here and we have three men. And these three men, notice, are all servants. They're all servants of this master. And what does he do? Well, this man goes on a long journey. But before he goes, before he goes, uh, he knows that what he wants to do is to continue to have his money invested. So what does he do? He gives them his capital. And notice what he does with them. He gives them according to their ability. So at least in the course of this text, we find that he hasn't given them more than he knows they have the ability to deal with. That is the reason why one gets five and one gets two and one gets one. And the one he gave five talents to another two and to another one. Now, what was a talent? We're not talking about the gift of playing music or or a talent in basketball, or whatever it is. I know what we're talking about. It's a measurement. In fact, it's been said that it was equivalent to 20 years of wages for the common worker. Now just think about that for just a minute. He gave one man what a common man would have earned in the course of 20 years. He gave that to him five times over. And he said, go invest it. And he does that same way with the man that he gives to two and the same way that he gives to the one. And, and the story unfolds and we discover what happens. The one who had been given the five talents, he immediately puts it to work. Immediately. Goes to work with it. He's about the business of making sure that he, that he handles and deals with all of this stuff in the very best way. And in the end, he has a 100% gain. He takes the five talents and he turns it in to ten talents. So this, this large amount that the man had given him now, he doubles it. And the same goes with the man who had been given the two. But the man who was given the one doesn't do a thing. The only energy that he exerts in the course of all of this, the only thing that he's got on his mind is digging a hole and putting it in a hole and hiding it and covering it up and then sits back on his laurels until the master gets back. Probably still living off of the master's goods, I would suppose, because he's a servant. We already know that he's been told that at the end uh, that he is lazy so he's sitting back and he is just feasting off of the master, not about the master's business. Pay attention to the response that he gives the master. He said, Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man. That, that, was his, that was his argument. I knew you to be a hard man where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went. And I hid your talent in the ground, buried it in the ground. What was he saying? Well, some believe that he was saying that the master was dishonest. Others were saying, well, the master was smart. He wasn't the one sowing, and he wasn't the one, one necessarily reaping, but he was investing in. I'm not sure that either one 
changes the outcome. The fact is, is that we hear the response. We hear the response of one, and then two, well done, good and faithful servant. Hear that. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. Even in the master's estimation, what he had given them was not all that he had. But what he had given them, he had given it to them, and they had done well with it. And then they'll listen to what he says. And he said, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And then this is the part. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. So where was their fulfillment going to be? Their fulfillment was going to be now in the presence of the master. They had served him joyfully while he was away. Not knowing how long he was going to be gone. And now they were going to experience his joy. But what does he tell the other man? He said, you wicked and lazy, slothful servant. And then notice what he does. He casts this worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Think about these questions for just a moment. I have to think about it myself. I wonder if the Lord returned today if I would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you? Why do you think you would hear whatever it is that your heart is telling you now? Believer, again, let's press hard into considering our lives. Who are we working for? What are we working for? I've had to ask myself this question. How are you managing what God has given you? Knowing that all that you have is God's, how are you managing it? How are you stewarding your mind? How are you stewarding your resources? How are you stewarding your own life? How are you considering what you're doing with your financial resources? Might you consider making adjustments in your life for the purposes of being able to do kingdom work? Or are we in the rut of our culture and what it tells us about our life and our gifts and our resources and we are caught up in the American dream? I wonder. How are you stewarding the gospel? I think at the heart of this text is just where we're getting to. He hasn't identified the work yet. He's getting ready to identify what that work looks like. But how are you stewarding the gospel? How are you actively engaging others for the purpose of considering who Christ is? 
How are you doing in developing relationships with lost people for the purpose of sharing the gospel? I'm not talking about being befriended. Of course, that would come in us being friendly and kind and gracious toward people. But, but how deliberate are we in sharing the gospel? Now listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm preaching to all of us here even now. We have, and, and I've heard, I think every one of you say it at some point in time, you love your church. You love Oak Valley. You love the people here. And almost always it is connected with we love the truth of God's Word that we hear week after week. We love the richness of the relationships. We love those things that feed our soul. But we have not been successful in seeing others come to Christ yet. I'm just wondering, may that be because we don't have others' souls in our sight? I don't believe it's because you would say, I'm not interested. I just wonder how we are working in regards to these things that God has entrusted to us as it pertains to the gospel and our lives and our time. Here's what we know from this text. The watchful, watchful will be faithful. That was what he was pointing to. The watchful will be faithful. So maybe if we are not faithful in handling these things, there may be the problem that precedes that is that we are not really watchful. We're not living with the return of Christ at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. Isn't it interesting that Jesus pointed again to the master's delay? The groom was delayed. Jesus had told his disciples last week, expect my return to be delayed. And notice here he says, now after a long time, the master of the servants came to settle accounts. What does this look like? The settling of accounts. Well, you know what? In true Jesus form, He's going to tell us. Because all of these are being brought together here. Christ redeemed. Act like Christ. Merciful love for Christ's people who are hurting. Let's listen to what the text has to say. Beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see uh, you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He's not making up a story here. He's telling us just exactly like it is. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will all answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus moves to help us understand that the watchful are faithful. And the faithful bear the fact that they are faithful. Faithful to who? Not faithful to work. Not faithful to industry. Faithful to God's work because they are faithful to Him. Jesus lays it out by talking about the final judgment. Remember the Master came back to those three servants to settle accounts. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is pointing to. And He's going to let us know now the criteria by which He discriminates on. Those who are watchful, those who are faithful, and those who are like Him, the redeemed. Those who are merciful and who love Christ's people. Notice that He comes in glory. He comes in this consummate event. And he's already said, I will not be unnoticed. He can't be unnoticed because he comes in magnificent glory. Every part of creation will recognize him and will see him for who he is. The reason that Paul was able to write to the church at Philippi and say that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Not saying that He is my Lord, but saying that He is the Messiah. You know why? Because when He comes back in glory, He won't need an announcement. He is coming, and when He comes, every part of creation, every person that has ever lived for all of time, will know Him for who He is. 
It doesn't mean that they'll be saved. It'll mean that they will recognize either the one that they have loved and served or the one that they have hated and despised and fought against, the one that they have rejected. He's the one who spoke everything into existence. He's the one who by Him and for Him all things were created. He is the one that holds all things together. And He is the one who will judge in righteousness. That's what He's saying. That an account is going to be given for our lives. Every living person, every person that has, has lived and died will stand before Him and give, and give an account. And notice the characterization that He uses for the distinguishing the people. He separated them like a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. I wonder how good you are uh, at distinguishing between sheep and goats. I thought I was pretty good until I got to West Africa. And there's sheep that look like goats and goats that look like sheep. And there are some distinguishing factors. Jesus tells us that there is a difference. That there will be sheep that look like goats and goats that look like sheep, so to speak. But there is a distinguishing factor. And that distinguishing factor is ultimately the Spirit of God in them that has transformed their heart to make them look like Him. Cerise the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we are being conformed, those who trust Him by the Spirit of God in them because of the atoning work of Christ that has now made it possible for the Spirit to come and to indwell and to save and to carry out the work that God has done in His work of election. People don't like this text because this text has election and predestination written all in it. They don't, like, they don't like to talk about hell. They don't want to talk about discrimination. They don't want to talk about these things, but it's here. But the point is, is that the Spirit of God changes the lives and the hearts of the people to make the real professors, the real professors, not just the professors, but the real professors to look like Christ. But now I want you to know, I think this text has implications, but I have often referred to this text as kind of the two arms of the work of the work of God in the world in acts of mercy, and then chapter 28 into the making of disciples. I may speak of it in those ways again, but it will always be qualified by this. These are not acts of mercy and love toward the masses. Okay? We're not talking about general ministry to the masses. We are talking about here. He is talking about here. And he makes it crystal clear. Notice what he says in verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, what? My brothers, you did it to me. And we know who his brothers are. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 50, after they were being brought together. In fact, turn over there just a few pages and be reminded of this so that we don't miss this. 
Verse 46. And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my brother and who are, who are who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now let's be clear. Jesus isn't building a case in any of these points that He's making. He's not building a case for works righteousness. He's not doing that. He's simply saying that if you are and hold a profession that is genuine, you'll be caring for the people of God, the body of Christ. That's what he's saying. So who will make it into heaven is the question. Who's going to make it into heaven? Well, those who profess Christ and whose profession is seen in being watchful and wise, industrious and faithful, and loving and merciful to Christ's people. I'm not sure, maybe with all of us, I'm not sure what you think about the church. And I'm talking about what do you think about the overall church, the body of Christ? Are you connected with the body of Christ, a local body? For some, that's a, that's a particularly serious question. Because if we are not connected to a local body of Christ to love and to care for, then how are we ultimately going to love and care for the body of Christ as they are hurt and as they are sick and as they are in prison and as they need care? And we're not talking about just acts of mercy. We're talking about acts of mercy with the understanding that inasmuch as we are serving one another here in the body of Christ, inasmuch as we are attending each other's needs, it is as if we are doing it to Christ. Do you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ as if you're looking at Christ? When you see them, do you see Christ? Do you love them in the way that you would suppose that Christ would, should be loved? Or even in the way that you say you love Christ? Are we that attentive? There's probably no more serious and harder text than this text. Because we talk about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and Jesus is helping us see that in the context, at the end of the day, our care for one another in the body of Christ has absolute bearing on the genuineness of our faith. Who will make it into heaven? The watchful and wise. The faithful. And the loving and merciful as done to Christ. An argument may be made is those who were not about this work said, well, it's almost as if, well, if we'd known it had been you, 
That's what they're saying. If, if we had known it would have been you, we would have done it. Well, they didn't know. You know why? They were professing, but they weren't real. Do you see the gravity of what Jesus is saying? And then the other side of that is an eternal judgment awaits those who are not watchful, who are not faithful, and who are not loving and merciful. And there is a period there, okay? Look at that. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the accounts have been settled. Lord God, grant us to be awakened and watchful. You have well warned us to be ready. Strengthen us in our faith as we have sang even today that we would trust in Jesus more. And help us, Lord God, to see our brothers and sisters in Christ as you. And to love them and serve them in that manner. Amen.